Grace, peace, and mercy to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. This is a recording of the 101 series, um, a podcast that I began last week. Uh, on the weeks that I don't preach, um, I'm going to record this as um, a contribution or whatever. And the purpose of this is to talk about the basics of the Christian faith, basics of what it means to be a Christian. And so last week we began reading through the Gospel of Matthew, and this week we're going to continue with that. But before that happens, today, as I record this, is known as Fat Tuesday, Shrove Tuesday, Mardi Gras, because today is the last day before Lent. So when the Lenten season begins, people tend to give up things. They fast. They do um, various things during that various disciplines during that season. And so Fat Tuesday is the day that you gorge yourself on that thing that you give up. That's why they call it Fat Tuesday. So if you're going to be fasting on food... You eat a lot of food and you literally kind of get fat on this Tuesday. So, what we're going to be doing is we're going to start off by getting fat on something ourselves. And that, we're going to kind of gorge ourselves on something. Because during the Lenten season, we say goodbye to the Alleluia. So tonight, when Mardi Gras ends, when... This evening, when it turns into Ash Wednesday, when it turns into the Lenten season, we are going to take those Alleluia's, we're going to put them away in a box, we're going to pack them up until Easter. So, because we're going to have that long period, we're going to kind of gorge ourselves a little bit here on Alleluia hymns to start. So, we're going to jump, we're going to start... If you have a Lutheran service book, you could kind of sing along with some of this. Uh, we're going to go to eight, hymn 821, which is, when I get to it, which is, Alleluia, sing to Jesus. Alleluia, sing to Jesus, is the scepter, he's the throne. Alleluia, he's the triumph, is the victory alone. Hark the songs of peaceful Zion, Thunder like a mighty flood, Jesus out of every nation has redeemed us by his blood. Alleluia, not as orphans, are we left in sorrow now? Alleluia, he is near us. Faith believes, nor questions how. Though the clouds 
from sight received him when the forty days were shall our hearts forget his promise i am with you evermore jump down to the fifth verse alleluia sing to jesus is the scepter he is the throne Alleluia, is the triumph, is the victory alone. Hark the songs of peaceful Zion, thunder like a mighty flood. Jesus, out of every nation, has redeemed us by his blood. So now we're going to switch over to another Alleluia Rich hymn, and that is Hymn 816, From All That Dwell Below the Skies. From all that dwell below the skies, let the Creator's praise arise. Alleluia, alleluia, let the Redeemer's name be sung through every land by every tongue. Alleluia, 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 Alleluia. Eternal are thy mercies, Lord. Eternal truth attends thy word. Alleluia. Alleluia, whom thy praise shall sound from shore to shore, till sun shall rise and set no more. Alleluia, 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 alleluia. Praise to God the Father be, all praise eternal Son to Thee, Alleluia, Alleluia, whom with the Spirit we adore, forever and forevermore, Alleluia. Alleluia, 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 Alleluia. All right, so the last Alleluia hymn we are going to sing before we roll into the text from Matthew chapter 3, which is where we'll be at today, and we're going to go see how far we get. Um, 
Before we get that, we're going to sing one more hymn, and this is a transfiguration hymn. It is a great last hymn right before um, you enter into that Lenten season. So uh, it's very fitting to sing as your last hymn on Transfiguration. Uh, Sunday afternoon, I was installed here at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Ida Grove, and the last hymn that I had selected uh, was Alleluia, Song of Gladness, which is hymn 417 in your Lutheran service book, specifically so we could get we could gorge ourselves in a little bit more Alleluia's just before we enter into that Lenten season. And so um, so that's the one we're going to sing, 417, Alleluia, Song of Gladness. Alright, so that is, so there's some good hymns, and by the way, if you, I hope you're listening, 
paying attention to those words. I especially like that third verse of that hymn that we just sang. It says, Alleluia cannot always be our song here below. Alleluia literally means, literally means praise Yah or praise Yahweh, the name of God. Alleluia. Our transgressions make us for a while forego. For the solemn time is coming when our tears for sin must flow. So that is the, you know, a big theme. That's the reason why this is such a good hymn to end for Transfiguration. Uh, because you are entering into the Lenten season where we are going to drop away these Alleluia's. And the reason is, is it is a season of repentance. Our sin is so great, so deep, that it's a time that we do forego those hallelujahs. We forego the songs of praise. We don't have the, the doxologies like the Gloria and Chelsea, so the Gloria Patri. So we don't have glory be to God on high. Or we don't have glory be to the, and that towards the end of the series, the end of Lent, we won't hear glory be to the Father and to the Son of the Holy Spirit. Because, and even in the prayers, most of our prayers uh, throughout the year, so for example, this is Transfiguration's prayer, it says, ends, Through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever, amen. Properly in Lent, you just say, through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. Amen. And the reason is, is because that doxology, those words of praise are being restrained because we are focusing on the fact that we are sinners deserving of death. And we are dying because of our sin. And our sin crucified our Savior. And so that's why these Alleluia's, they get packed away for the season of Lent. So, with all that in mind, we are going to move in to the readings from Matthew. And the plan is, is so we're right now at a 15-minute mark. And so, wherever we are, when we get to that hour mark, that's where we're going to stop. So, uh, so, if you have a Bible, I read out of the English Standard Version. Um, I'm going to be nice. I won't read out of the Greek or anything. Uh, it's good. I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 3, beginning at verse 1, which writes, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now I'm going to stop right there. Now the, the see, this is the, the baptism of our Lord. And the, the church here is usually, it's the Sunday right after Epiphany. And, but the interesting thing is that phrase in verse 2, Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's a very good verse, little words, as we are entering into Lent tomorrow. Like I said, a season of repentance. I mean, the hymn of the day for tomorrow is um, Luther's um, From Depths of Woe, I Cry to Thee, which is a deeply, deeply uh, penitential hymn. And so um, that penitential season is coming. And the, this is telling you the reason, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
the kingdom of heaven. I mean, for the you know, for John the Baptist, he's telling him that Jesus, the Messiah, they don't know it's Jesus, but the Messiah, the Christ, is coming. He's going to be there at that Jordan River, where in the wilderness of Judea, where John the Baptist is baptizing. He's coming. For us, we read that the kingdom of heaven is it's in the word, it's in the sacraments coming to us. And there's also, I mean, there, the kingdom of heaven is also near in the simple fact that, like I said, as we enter into the Lent season, I mean, tomorrow, when we come to Ash Wednesday, the pastor is going to put us, actually, I'm going to go to that a little bit here. I'm going to jump to that. So, but that's important. Just keep that back of your head, that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It says, verse 3, For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw some of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So, stepping backwards again here. So, all these people are coming out to, G to John to be baptized. A baptism for repentance. Now, it is of note, and this is actually gets reflected in other scriptures, and even John reflects this, is that, and you're actually going to hear it, um, let's see here, okay, never, yeah, it's not in here, but um, John's baptism is, yeah, actually it is coming up in this next section, but the baptism of John is not the same as the baptism that we are baptized with. Um John's baptism is a baptism of repentance. So it is kind of an act of recognizing that you were a sinner and that that needs to be washed away. And so it talks about them coming to, they're confessing their sins. Um, and so this is going to get reflected the way John talks when we get to verse 11, that this baptism is um, a little bit different. Um, and then he's, you know, he's talking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And, and I want you to understand something. This is something that's very, very important to remember. Because the Pharisees and the Sadducees come up a lot throughout the Gospels. And, you know, we hear about them. We hear about the Pharisees and the Sadducees now because we've, we've heard them talked about all the time. I mean, it's like the, it's one of the biggest insults to give to somebody. Oh, you're a Pharisee. People hate to be called that. It's a, it's a very common ad hominem. Ad hominem is a logical fallacy where you attack the person. Um, but it's a common ad hominem amongst Christians. But the thing is, is that 
Pharisees in the time of Jesus were not considered the bad guys. They were considered the models of righteousness. They were considered the models of goodness. You wanted to be like a Pharisee in the time of Jesus. So the way that John reacted to them and later Jesus reacts to them is totally surprising to the original readers, to the original crowds. This was just amazing, incredible. And so like you, so again, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. You know, this, I mean, this is, you know, they're, they're, do, they're going through these motions. They're trying to be popular or whatever and do what everyone else is doing, whatever, to keep face. But John sees right through them. And he sees that though they look like they're coming in repentance, but he sees right through that they're not. And how many people do say this? You know, may not say we have Abraham as our father, but, you know, we might say, you know, in the modern church, we might say, well, I've been in this church for eight, eight, 60 years, 70, 80, 90 years, whatever. And look at me. And, I, you know, we think that all of a sudden, the, that because we've been in the church for 90 years, all of a sudden that we have a bigger voice than the person that went into the church for a year. Or we have a greater standing with God than the person who's been in there for a year. All the while forgetting what Jesus himself said, that the first will the first will be last and the last will be first. You know, or the parable of the vineyard, which is going to come up later. I mean, this is something that we still struggle with, just as the Pharisees did. That we think that because of our hierarchy, our descendants, or we like, well, my parents or my grandparents built this church with their own bare hands. And we'll think that that puts us a better status in the church than anyone else. That's not how it works. We so badly want to be the Pharisees. And there, you know, right there, says, I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. And notice we say, not ch the children, the true children of Abraham are not by blood. The children of Abraham are by the promise. The promise of the son, of the offspring. That was given all the way back in Genesis. So that's why we, you know, in Sunday school, we have kids singing that. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. And then we eventually say, I am one of them. And so are you. That's why he's a father. I'm not a blood descendant. I'm not a Jew. I'm a Gentile, like probably most of you listening to this. But, nonetheless, because if you have faith in Christ, you are a son of Abraham. And God can raise, create faith in anybody. So, <coughs> that's what John just told them. Out of these stones, God can raise up a son of Abraham. And that even goes into evangelism a little bit. We think, oh, I don't, I shouldn't tell, I can't tell my faith to that person. There's no way they're going to believe God will, or maybe God doesn't want them. Maybe we cast our own judgments as to who we should tell about our faith. And 
Right there, again, God can raise from these stones children of Abraham. It's not for us to decide who to tell and who not to tell. We're supposed to just tell people about our faith. That's it. That's all. Verse 11. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing work is his winnowing fork is in his hand, and you will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the shaft he will burn with unquenchable fire. So again, tomorrow is going to be Ash Wednesday, and perhaps when you listen to this, maybe it will be Ash Wednesday. And I'm sorry if you had to listen to a few Alleluia's that I, you didn't get quite into the Alleluia fast. Hopefully you jumped through to that 15-minute mark or something. But tomorrow, Ash Wednesday, when you gather into church, the Ash Wednesday, Lent as a whole, has a lot of awesome, beautiful, powerful liturgies all throughout the season. Um, Ash Wednesday is the first of those. And at the beginning, there's a there's three things that happen in some churches, not all churches. I mean, there's variations in practice. But it starts out with a, a confessional address. It's a little short one, introducing the Lenten season. Uh, then there's a, a litany. Um, and then sometimes you might recite Psalm 51 or chant it or whatever. And then you have what is the imposition of the ashes. And so people will come forth, and the pastor will will take a little bit of ash, palm ash, and place it on your forehead and say, you are from dust, and to dust you shall return. Two things being spoken of there. One, the ash itself and the words is a reminder of what the whole Lenten season is about, is a reminder of the fact that you are dying. You're going to die someday, some way, somehow, somewhere. There's no person that's safe. There's no guarantee as to how long you're going to live. There are children that die. There are teenagers that die. There are college students that die. There are young, adult, there are young adults who die. There are... Um, people in their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, hundreds, if you get that far. There's no guarantees in this life. And so that ash is to remind you, you could die. You may not, you know, you go to that ash once they say, you may not make it home. You don't know that. You might not make it to the ash once they surface. That's the reality of a sin-fallen world. But see, the ash is also shaped in a specific way. The passage doesn't just put like his handprint of ash on you. He doesn't make little circles or, I don't know, like start trying to draw like X-Men figures or something like that at it. He makes it in the shape of a cross. Why? Because when you were baptized, the pastor said to you, I baptize you in the name of the Father. Says, or sorry, before he baptized, he says, receive the sign of the cross upon your forehead and upon your heart to mark you as one redeemed by Christ the crucified. 
right? So that is... And so that cross is reminding you that though you shall die on account of your baptism, you will rise. The Lenten season is not just about the fact that you're going to die. It is preparing you to die well. And how do we die well? By focusing on the one who was crucified for you. And right in there, you kind of did see that there is a distinguishing in the baptisms. John himself admits that he says it. I baptize you with water for repentance. Again, in a little bit. And then it says, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So he is acknowledging that his baptism is different. And it's so and this also shows something about Jesus. We don't like to talk about this. But he says it that Jesus is going to come. You know, we, we confess it in the creed all the time. He comes to judge the living and the dead. What does that mean? Does that mean he's going to send that every single person in the whole world is going to be saved? No. It means that there are those who are going to go to the left and there are those who are going to go to the right. And we're going to get to that in the Gospel of Matthew, not probably for um, probably a few several weeks, but... We're going to get to that in the Gospel of Matthew, the separation of the, the sheep and the goats. That there are some that are going to be sent to eternal life, and there are some that are going to be sent to the eternal judgment. There's the wheat into, that is gathered, the gathering of the wheat into his barn, and there is the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The wheat are the redeemed, the chaff is the condemned. Why is one condemned and not the other? The one who is saved, who is redeemed, was chosen by God. They have absolutely no credit for their salvation. None. They did nothing. The one who is condemned, it is all their fault. All of it. 100% their blame because they refused the grace of our God. Now I know that's a big conversation for another time. But verse 12 is getting into that question, the, what we call the crux theologorum, the cross of the theologian. Why are some people saved and not others? So verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized immediately, he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son. 
with whom I am well pleased. So there is a big moment. Jesus comes to be baptized by John. John does not consider himself worthy. No, he wasn't. John was right. John wasn't worthy. Even though, according to Jesus, we'll read it later, that John was the greatest man born of woman. And yet, even in spite of that, he is not worthy to baptize Christ. You know, he says it right there, is that even before, he says, I'm not worthy to carry his sandals. In other words, he's saying, I'm not worthy to be a poor, measly little servant. And none of us are. And that's true. But nonetheless, our Lord uses the unworthy to carry out his deeds, his plans, his mission. And so John is used as the instrument by which God, by which Jesus is anointed. He is being anointed in his baptism for the purpose. <coughs> so again, Jesus, the baptism here that is happening to Jesus, it's a one-time only baptism. No one will receive that baptism ever again. See, John, the baptism that Jesus received is the reverse of our baptism. And it's kind of seen in that. It is necessary, it, thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. I'm going to pull a, a verse out of 2 Corinthians that's kind of relevant to this. Um, 2 Corinthians ver, chapter 5. It's verse 20. It says, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Okay, here we go. Verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, when you are baptized into Jesus, you are clothed in Jesus, according to Galatians. You are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You become the righteousness of God in the waters of baptism. But when Jesus was baptized, he received your sin. When he was baptized... He became sin for us that he might go to the cross. Even though he never committed a single sin in his entire life, he became sin. That you and I might become the righteousness of God. We become the righteousness of God of baptism through the power of the cross. But that was anointed, that was began right here. And furthermore, in this text, we actually have the Trinity well at work. See, the, the God, so Jesus is God, the Father is God, the Holy Spirit is God. Yet there are not three gods, but one God. But the thing is, there are three persons. One of the a, a church heresy 
that doesn't go away. In fact, some very prominent preachers, uh, T.D. Jakes is an example of one, teaches what is known as modalism. And this is the teaching that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one person. They're different aspects of God that falls flat on its face right here. Because the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, is descending like a dove. The Father is speaking and Jesus is being baptized. Jesus isn't throwing his voice. All three persons of the Trinity are present right there. The Father is speaking, the Holy Spirit is descending, and Jesus is the one being baptized. And all three of them are God, and yet they are not three gods, but one God. It's the complexity of the Trinity. Modalism is an attempt to solve that, but this full, this just breaks it apart. You have to explain this away. How are they separated like this? So, as you know, God is not like Voltron or a Transformer where you could just combine them or, you know, or Captain Planet. Your powers combined, I'm Captain Planet or something. They are all 100% God. It's not a partialism or... Um, anything like that. So uh, this is, uh, like I said, a very strong argument against that sort of teaching. So there ends chapter 3, and we're going to roll right into chapter 4. We still have a little bit of time left on this recording. And so we're going to roll into chapter 4, and I think that's where we're going to get through to because um, we'll, we'll start on the Sermon on the Mount probably next week. So, continues, so chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And I want you to notice that for the the temptation. And you're going to see this three times. Okay, two times. He says to him, if you are the son of God. Now this is a little bit more significant. This is more noticeable in Luke's account. But it is definitely still at play here. What right happened just before this was God the Father speaking from heavens saying, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. So right there at the baptism, it was confirmed that he is the son of God. And so right away, he goes into the wilderness and he's being tempted. 40 days and 40 nights. This is very relevant because we're heading into Lent. In fact, this will be the gospel lesson for most churches um, this coming Sunday. And so... 40, that's actually one of the reasons why Lent is 40 days and 40 nights. Um, it's reflective of the temptation of Jesus. Um, but the, like I said, the very first charge is, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's something that, that the response that Jesus gave, that is something we could really learn. 
Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. From the mouth of Jesus himself, quoting the scriptures, the word of God is the most important thing there is, even more important than food. It is more important that you are fed by God's word than it is that you are fed by the food out of the grocery store. And yet we so regularly treat God's word as if it's of second importance. I mean, right there, Jesus has the option. He could have turned those stones into bread. The charge that... Um, that Satan is giving, the devil is giving to him. He could have done it. We know God could do things, pretty crazy things like that. But he didn't. Why? Because that was not what was needful. This is one of the reasons why during the season of Lent, people have made the habit of fasting. It's to teach us to depend not on food alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And notice, it doesn't say some of the words. It says every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is why, if you do take the habit of fasting, um, some people, and I, I, you know, tomorrow's Lent, I'll figure out if I decide to do this, but some people during the season of Lent will give up a meal or two a day. And when they would be normally eating, they spend that time reading the scriptures and in prayer. It's disciplining their mind and their body to recognize that God's word is of the utmost importance. And then that money you save by not eating you don't put it in your bank account. Ooh, I could go buy something really cool at the end of Lent. No. Rather, you're supposed to take that money to those who do not have food because they're impoverished. So, uh, continuing on to verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. This is a really kind of a good example of how we're supposed to treat the Bible. Because notice what... Um, the devil's doing. He's quoting the Bible. And this is actually one of the reasons what it's actually very fitting that this is the second temptation. Right after Jesus says that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, we hear the devil quoting words from the mouth of God, but he's quoting it out of context. Which is why we need to know every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's why we go to Bible studies. That's why we have daily devotions. That's why I'm offering this to you. For those of you who are listening to this. 
that you can hear God's word, that you can regularly study it, that you can know it, because the devil knows the Bible, and he knows how to twist it, and there are preachers aplenty. And if you don't believe me, go listen to uh, Chris Roseborough's Fighting for the Faith, and you will hear a multitude of preachers twisting the Bible. The devil knows the Bible well, and he knows how to twist it. And the irony is, if you were to look up these verses, and it's kind of, it's very, there's a very good reason why the devil does not quote the entirety of that passage from Psalm 91. I'm going to quickly turn to that. So Psalm 91 Verse 11 and 12, it says, For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. That's where it ends. And by the way, interestingly, this is um, this was part of the, the intuit for um, this past Sunday, if you're in the one-year lectionary. But notice the thir verse 13. It says... You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent. You will trample underfoot. See, verse 13 is talking about how this son of God, whom the devil is tempting, that son of God is going to crush the very devil that is tempting him. This is why you need to know your scriptures. Is because then you can respond. You can, it makes you much more dangerous. And it makes you more ready to die well. Because so what Jesus said to him. Again it is written you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Very straightforward. Don't test God. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And I should note right here, atheists will try to claim this is, say that Matthew's claiming a flat earth. I want you to understand that what is going on here is not normal. You can't normally see every kingdom of the earth from a single hill. You know, I'm, we're in Ida, I'm here in Ida Grove and we, have, we live on a hill. If I looked off, the, off of a hill... I'm not going to be able to see Sioux City. For, I, can't see, I can't see Holstein from here, I don't think. So, I mean, it's not normal to see all the kingdoms of the earth from a single hill. This is not what the devil is doing. It's more, mirac more abnormal vision, okay? So don't get into the flat earth arguments on here. But I've heard that, so it's, it's a nonsense. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Well, isn't that so true? You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And it's good to say, be gone, Satan, because the devil loves to tempt you. I mean, our Lord right here is telling, showing you, demonstrating how 
We are to react to the devil. Tell him to get out of our face. And he wags and says, hey, I am a baptized child of God. And he, you know what? Get out of my face. And you are to be worshipping him. Because when we are not worshipping him, when we are not spending time in the divine service, we become weaker and weaker and weaker. And we become prey to the devil every step of the way. Verse 12. Now when he heard that John had been arrested... He withdrew, Jesus withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. We hear that in the, you know, we sing the Nuke Dimittis every Sunday, well, many Sundays, out of Divine Service 3 and 1 and 2 also have it. Um, Lord, now let your servant depart in peace. And there's that little phrase, a light to lighten the Gentiles, of which we are the Gentiles. Um, and it's also of note is, as we read through this, you know, in the coming weeks, when you hear that Jesus went to his home, he's not ta- it's not talking about Nazareth. It's not talking about Bethlehem. It's talking about Capernaum. And this is your evidence right here. Capernaum became his home um, early on in his ministry. While walking by the sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. Uh, Matthew does not include the miraculous catch in the calling of the disciples these first disciples, but it is notable. And this is something that you'll notice in Matthew's gospel, is when he calls the apostles, when he says, follow me, they, they just do it. I mean, this is remarkable. I mean, there's, there's no decision moment. They don't say, Lord, we accept your invitation. No, they just go. They just leave their net. They just leave their job. They leave their father tending to the nets, and they just go follow him. I mean, it's, it's remarkable, and this is actually telling you a lot about the power of Jesus' word. And this is something you will come out in all the scriptures, that the words of Jesus, the voice of Jesus is so powerful that people do something crazy and just drop everything. I mean, just imagine this. Imagine, you know, somebody walks into your local uh, Hardee's or McDonald's or whatever. A guy walks in and he just tells the guy at the, the register, he says, hey, follow me. What's the chance that that guy's going to just drop, you know, throw his um, apron down, put down his hat or whatever he's got, and he's just going to go walk and follow this guy? He gets met right then and there. Not very likely. But that is what the these fishermen do. And later you're going to hear Matthew, who's writing this gospel, or Levi as he was once called, 
he's going to do the same thing. It's remarkable. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. So that's where we're going to end. That looks like a good ending point. Um, I'm going to end with a few notes here. Uh, first off is, if anyone was interested, um, I will be on KFUO this coming Friday um, for his time with Pastor Jonathan Fisk, uh, who's also the host of Worldview Everlasting. If you've ever seen those videos on YouTube, which are wonderful resources, uh, I'll be on there this Friday at 8 o'clock. You can find it on KFUO AM. Uh, I was also a guest this, I'll also be on a a guest on the show, um, The Gospel Asylum, uh, which is hosted by a couple, of, by a guy that I went to school with back at Concordia, Concordia Wisconsin. Uh, and you may listen to that as we talk about the Lenten season. And also, speaking of him, his name is Ryan Porter. Uh, him, along with Gavin Mize, uh, who is a, a pastor out of South Carolina, I believe, are working on a book that is known that's called the ABCs of the Liturgy. It is a simple book used for teaching kids about the liturgy. And he uh, my and so Ryan is doing the artwork for it, and Gavin is the one that's um, who's a pastor, uh, is uh, doing the writing of it. So uh, I don't know the exact date when that gets released, but when it does, it will be it would be an excellent, excellent resource for pastors uh, to uh, give to Sunday school age kids or people just to give to their children in general. So, um, and it's a good way to just explain very simply to kids why do we do what we do, and it enriches worship. It sees you know the divine service is an awesome thing that we've got, and it becomes better when you actually know why we do it. So, with all that in mind, this is we're going to end, and I'm going to end by with a recording of a Lenten hymn. Uh, you'll be, you can, I guess, you'll be surprised as to which one it is, and I'm going to play that in a little bit to get you ready for the Lenten season that is to start tomorrow. So until that, ha until then, um, again, I am Pastor Neil Wemus. This is the recording of the 101 series podcast. Uh, I'll come back to you again next week. We'll continue on some of Matthew. And if you live anywhere in the area of Ida Grove, you are invited to attend our services. Uh, we have one at Saturday nights at 6 o'clock and then Sunday morning at 8 and 10.30. And if you do not live in the area, go to uh, www.issuesetc.org or www.lutheranliturgy.org or www.lcms.org. And all three of those sites have a Find a Church tab. Go find one in your area. Hopefully there's one not too far from you. And so uh, with that all in mind, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. 
The Lord lift up his counsels upon you and give you his peace. Amen.